Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. And I have a word on my heart from the Lord that I'm very blessed to be able to share with you. And uh, I always... I, I always feel the privilege of being allowed by God to stand and share the Word of God with you and the things that He has put on my heart because, um, honestly, I can't remember a time in my life that I've preached, and I've preached a lot in my life, that I wasn't preaching to myself also. These are things that God is speaking to me. This is the living Word of God, and it's a, a sharp and an active two-edged sword. That, that, that the Lord is reaching out to each one of our lives today. And so even for the smallest child, uh, you, know, you know, as you're doing your praise packs and you're wandering around, just open your hearts now to allow the Lord to minister to you in your life. So open up Acts chapter 26. We've been going through the book of Acts. It's amazing. This wonderful book that I've told you many times is not the history of the ancient church. It's not the history of the church in the first century. It's the history of our church, because there is only one church. This is our history that we are reading. And the things that we are reading, it should always challenge us to compare ourselves to the, the attitudes, to the heart, and to the actions. Thus, the name of the book is the Acts. It is the Acts of the Apostles. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord is acting. He is moving. He is doing something in our midst today. And are we walking in this place according to our history of who we are in Christ Jesus? So Acts chapter 26, and before we get started with this, this amazing story in this chapter, I want us just to have a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, and right now we just, uh, again, uh, lay our hearts our open before you. We're just an open book before you, Lord. There's nothing we're hiding from you, you know, there may be many things that we hide from each other, but there's nothing we hide from you, Lord. We are here before you. Our hearts are laid out before you. And we just ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 26. I had several different possible titles for today's message, but I entitled the message, The Outstretched Hand of Salvation. And we're going to be looking at Paul's defense before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And I'm not going to go over all the ugly story that I told you about last week, if you don't remember that. So uh, we had the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is Festus, the bad is Felix and Drusilla, and the ugly is Agrippa and Bernice. And it's really ugly. You'll just remember this one Thing. It's family Sunday, so we don't want to go into great detail here, but they are not married to each other. They are brother and sister, but they live in incest with, with each other. And uh, their situation, they're so lost. They are so far gone from the Lord. And I think that's really important for you to understand this morning, because you're going to see that the gospel is preached to them and the hand of Jesus is reached out to them for their salvation. And I want you to hear that first of all. There's nobody that's still alive on this planet that is so far gone that they cannot be saved. 
And I want your faith to be encouraged this morning for those that you love, that you care about. Now, Agrippa and Bernice don't get saved at the end of the story, okay? But the gospel is preached to them, so the opportunity is there for them. That the Lord has not said, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with you because your sin is so foul, your sin is so dirty. No, the Lord reaches out to them also. So the title of the message is The Outstretched Hand of Salvation, and we're actually just going to go through chapter 26 and look at this story together. It says in chapter 26, Agrippa, and remember, he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He, Agrippa is in title, uh, officially, the king of Judea. But he's a a vassal king of the empire of Rome, of course. And it says in uh, chapter 26, verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you, and remember he's, sorry, but remember he's come with great pomp, right? He's come with great uh, pomp, and that Greek word there is fantasy. It's all about the show. Everything is about the show for him. So when you read these words, you should read them like this. You are permitted to speak for yourself. You know, it's very... Uh, regal. You are permitted to speak for yourself. Now look at this. It says, then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Before we move on, I want to focus on that phrase, stretched out his hand, because it's not insignificant. If you remember the story of Esther, and we talked about this last week and how she went in before the king, she went with great trembling because she knew that if the king did not stretch out his scepter to her, that she would be put to death because she had come without an invitation. You remember that? You don't just go before a great and powerful king like Agrippa and make, make, make no mistake, Agrippa has massive power in this court. He has more power than Festus has because he has the opportunity to influence the entire nation of the Jews. He's not... Jewish by race, technically, and I won't go into all the details of the Herods, but he is Jewish, and he is the proclaimed king of the Jews, who actually actually is an antichrist, because Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so when it says that he stretched out his hand, that phrase has great significance. In fact, if you were to look that phrase up, and you could just do it in English, and find this phrase, stretched out the hand. It always has to do with one of two things, okay? In the New Testament, it's used several times. And one of the aspects of it is to do somebody harm, to stretch out your hand to whack them on the head or something, or hit them with a sword, okay? The other aspect, and this is one we have to focus on because obviously Paul's not getting ready to punch Agrippa in the face, right? Is to stretch out the hand for salvation. And it's a phrase that's used concerning Jesus. And I want you to see this morning that as Paul stands there to preach the gospel to Agrippa, and mind you, he is preaching the gospel. When it says that he is making his defense, do you know that the Greek word for defense is apologia? It's apologetics. And apologetics are all about not defending Jesus. He doesn't need our defense but defending the truth of the gospel in such a way that it reaches into the heart of the one who has built up a wall to reject that gospel, okay? And so he's not defending himself. He's, he's, he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you'll see that obviously in this. So he stretches out his hand. The outstretched hand of Jesus is extended to Herod and to Bernice 
through the Apostle Paul. The outstretched hand of Jesus extends his anointing to a person to save them, to save every person who cries out to him for salvation. Do you know that Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. It doesn't matter how deep in sin they are, how lost they are, how much of an enemy of the gospel they have been. If they will just call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus himself said, All whom the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly, or as the King James says, I will in no wise cast him out. In no wise. When we come to Jesus, he will never say, I don't have time for you. And this is true at the moment of your salvation, when you first receive Jesus Christ as your Lord in your life. And it's true throughout your entire walk with Jesus. He'll never say to you, I'm too busy, or I don't care about your problem. He will in no wise cast us out. It's all about salvation for him. In Matthew chapter 14, we read a story that everybody in here knows, so I'm not going to open it up to read it. But in that story, Jesus is walking on the water. And Peter sees him walking on the water because he's coming to their boat. You know this story, right? And Peter says, Master, command me to come out to you. And so Jesus says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a made-up story. These are totally rational, normal people that wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks on the water to Jesus. But when he sees the waves and the storm that's around him, he fears, and you know, he sinks. Okay, And he would have died on that day. But it says in verse 30 of Matthew chapter 14, that beginning to sink, Peter cried out. He cried out. Whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter cried out, Lord, save me. This story isn't just about his physical salvation. Okay, It's in the Bible because it's a story and a picture of our eternal salvation. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus said, Larry reminded me of this this morning, that I go to prepare a place for you, right? And so when Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, he calls everyone to salvation. But we cannot cross over from our boat to, to, to God's kingdom. We cannot cross over through that storm without the saving power of Jesus Christ. There's no way for us to make it all the way over without his saving power in our lives. And so Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And it says, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. In the Greek, it's the exact same words that are used here in verse 1. He stretched out his hand, and he took hold of him, and he said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. We're going to see in this story in Acts chapter 26 that Jesus, through Paul, says these exact same words. I mean, they're different words, but the exact same meaning. He says this same spiritual truth to Agrippa. But Peter took a hold of the hand of Jesus. He could have rejected the hand of Jesus. No, no, I know how to swim. I'm fine. But he took a hold of the hand of Jesus. Agrippa did not take a hold of the hand of Jesus. So they got into the boat and the wind stopped. Agrippa never got into the boat. Paul is ready to be the hand of Jesus, to pull Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and anybody else that was in that room that day into the boat. 
are we, I want, as we go through the story, for you also to see yourselves as Paul. Okay? How are we preaching the gospel to people? How are we apologizing, if we use the Greek of that, for Jesus? In other words, defending the gospel in a way, not to defend the gospel in a way that we're defending ourselves, but so that we can break down the barriers in people's minds so that they can receive the gospel. We have that power and that anointing. Your hands are the hands of Jesus, and they are stretched out to this community and to this world we live in. So, look at verse 2. In regard to all the things, Paul begins to speak, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today. The word fortunate is unfortunate in the New American Standard. It would better to be right the word blessed here because the word in the Greek is the word makaros, and it's the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Okay? He says, I am extremely blessed. The word actually means, uh, it's kind of like the word macaroni, okay, by the way, but it actually means happy in the highest degree. It means to be so happy that nothing can take away that happiness that you have. And so he says, I am blessed. I am most fortunate. I'm happy beyond belief that I have the opportunity to make this defense before you. Just think about those words. You know, I mean, King Agrippa has the power, literally, to, to bring an end to Paul's life on this day. And he's, he's just tickled pink that he has the opportunity to stand before Agrippa and preach the gospel. You know, do we see that the situations we end up in life, some of them are terrible. Some of them, we really aren't happy to be there. But we have to see things with the eyes of Jesus. That This is an opportunity for the gospel. There's a little story that I've always loved, a pastor that I used to go to his church years ago, and he used to do the gospel bill shows, if anybody remember that, remembers those. Uh, Willie George, it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He always told this story several times in sermons. I always loved this story, the story of a little boy and... Uh, uh, his dad or somebody tells him to go in and clean out the stables where the horses are and you know it's a huge mess and he's cleaning the stables and his dad comes back later to check on him and he's in there just so excited cleaning like crazy and singing a song and he's so happy and his dad goes what are you so excited about and 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 and, and the son says well with all this horse manure in here there's got to be a horse somewhere he was just so excited because he was hoping to find a horse in there. You know, well, Paul's excited. I have an opportunity to preach the gospel to King Agrippa and to Bernice. Okay, look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, especially, so I'm especially excited because you are an expert. Okay, the Greek word here in our modern English would be perfect if we said you are a connoisseur. That's what he's saying. You know about these things. You know, you are a connoisseur of what? You are a connoisseur of the customs and of the questions among the Jews. Well, the questions means, in the Greek, the controversial issues. You are a connoisseur both of the customs among the Jews and the controversial issues that divide them. Therefore, I beg you to patiently listen to me. What Paul says here isn't some kind of joke or just some kind of flattery. It's the absolute truth. Both Agrippa and Bernice, and we talked a little bit about this last week, they had great favor with Nero in Rome. 
They had more favor than Festus did and definitely than, than Felix did. They had great favor. They were very influential and important people in Rome. And you remember later that Bernice will have a long love affair with Titus, who becomes the emperor. These are very famous people. But they also enjoyed authority in the Judean province amongst the Jews. And the Jews were always fighting with them. And they were experts at taking the side of the person they needed to take the side to make it all work around so the Jews did what they wanted. Okay? They knew how to manipulate. They knew how to pull the strings. These people were, were very powerful uh, politicians. And so Paul understands that of all the people he has testified before up until this day, these are in reality the most influential and the most knowledgeable of the things that he's going to testify about. So he's going to talk in more detail with them about Jesus than he does with Festus. You know, sometimes you're trying to share some, the Lord with someone, and you need to share at the level where they can hear it. I mean, there's stuff he can tell Festus, and there's stuff he can't tell Festus, because Festus has no context. Remember, Festus doesn't have a clue. He's a good man, but he doesn't have a clue. He has no context to understand what Paul's talking about. But Agrippa has that context. And so Paul is excited about this. And it's, a, it's a, an amazing opportunity for Agrippa. Romans 5.20 says that the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more sinful Agrippa and Bernice are, and they are very sinful. That just means the more room there is for God's grace to wash over them and set them free from those sin. So let's read verses 4 through 8. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. So Paul's going to begin here by talking about his fame, that he's famous in the land. All the Jews know about me, and it's the truth. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which was from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. Remember, none of them would actually come and testify according to the rules and the laws of the court. So he says, if they're willing to testify, they're going to tell you, I was a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible? Listen to this question. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does indeed raise the dead so paul begins by talking about his fame throughout the land and he explains to agrippa the real reason why he's on trial the hope that he's talking about is the resurrection from the dead the hope is the resurrection from the time of adam and eve god told them in the day that you eat of this fruit you will die and satan lied to them and deceived them and said, no, you shall not surely die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to control the power of good and evil and have all this knowledge and follow all this science and be such geniuses. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And they listened to the serpent, you know the story, and they ate of that fruit, and in that very day, they died. Did they actually physically die that day? No. 
It took hundreds of years later back then, but death began to work in their physical body from that very moment in time. From that moment in time, sickness and disease entered our lives. From that moment in time, death, everyone who was born, was born to die, knowing someday they would die. And in the early chapters of Genesis, they could live for hundreds, sometimes over 900 years. Because death and disease takes time to conquer our bodies. But then later, by the time we get to Abraham, if somebody lives to 120, and by the time we get to Moses, who did live to 120 by God's blessing, but Moses said, if, and it remains to this day, it is given to us to live 70 years on this earth. And if by strength we might live 80. And you know that. And, you know, I want to live to be 100 years old. But we know that there's a limit of time that we have in these bodies. Death entered their lives on that day. And Paul is saying, the real reason that I'm being put on trial here today is because I've been preaching to everyone that death no longer has power, that God has raised up his son Jesus from the dead, that we shall live forever. I've been preaching the words of Jesus. He that believes in me will never die. You know, people are going to think you cra you cra you're crazy if you say to them, I'm never going to die. But go ahead and say it because it's the truth. I'm telling you this morning, Kevin Webster is never going to die. Okay? And you might be at my funeral someday, but that's not really my funeral. I got news for you. I just went to bed. Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to raise from the dead in this physical body, but it's going to be different. It's going to be glorified. I don't even know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be amazing. Those dreams you used to have when you were a kid, you know, you're like Peter Pan and you're flying around or something like that. It's going to be better than that. It's just going to be amazing what God's going to do. That's the hope that we have. And Paul says, they are putting me on trial and they want to put me to death because I've been preaching resurrection. He says to them, you know, as a boy, I grew up here in Jerusalem. We know that Paul came, he was born in Tarsus. Tarsus is in Asia Minor, in Kalikia, on the southern coast of modern-day Turkey. But as a young boy, his father sent him to Jerusalem, he's telling us here, to study under the great and powerful rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And that's here in the book of Acts. And Gamaliel is the grandson of the very famous rabbi by the name of Hillel. And at the time of the book of Acts, there are two rabbinic schools, both of them pharisaical, but they are at war with each other, basically. I mean, they probably go out and have coffee together, but they have completely conflicting ideas. The school of Hillel, that's the school that Paul studied at, okay? It's under Gamaliel. And then there's a school of Shammai. And the school of Shammai is the more radical tending school. It's the school that we would call today the conservatives. Okay? It would probably be the Republican school. I don't know any more about Republicans than Democrats. The school of Hillel was the more liberal-minded school in the sense that the school of Hillel, they tended to want to do things that would make peace with Rome. They tended toward the direction of not trying to overthrow Rome and establish their own government in Israel. They were realistic about this, okay? The school of Shammai are the ones to which flocked all the zealots, including these Sikari, although they didn't really belong to any school. They just like to kill people. They're assassins, you know, professionally trained assassins, okay? But, you know, whoever paid them money, that's who they worked for. But that's the school of Shammai. And at the time of the book of Acts, the school of Shammai, the more radical school, 
uh, and I'm saying radical, but really it was perceived as the conservative movement at that time, the, the, the Make Israel Great Again movement, okay? And the school of Shemaiah is the school that had the most influence and the most power, okay? But in AD 70, just 10 years after the story we're reading, the school of Shemaiah was completely wiped out. And it never, it never uh, had the sway that it had ever again in the history of Judaism to this very day. To this very day, Orthodox Jews would, you know, the ones you know, with all the gear and everything, the really ultra-Orthodox Jews and rabbis would align themselves more with the school of Hillel. And Hillel came out on the top in history as the great teacher, okay? Not Shammai. Why? Because everything Shammai, who was dead by this time, but that school was preaching, came absolutely to naught when Jerusalem was wiped out by the Romans and the temple was utterly destroyed. It turned out that they had led their people to Masada and their people had been destroyed and completely lost. Okay? So the only ones left alive were the school of Hillel ones, and that's the ones that continued. Why is that important in this story? Because it's important for you to understand that in the beginning, Paul was trained with a more liberal education, with a more liberal mind. And he was a great Pharisee. In fact, he was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And he asked this question to Agrippa. Mind you, Agrippa knows who Paul is. He understands these things. He's a connoisseur of everything I just told you. And he knows how to manipulate these two parties against each other. And Paul was trained in that school, he says. And then he asked this question in verse 8 that I think is key to the entire chapter. And a question we need to hear today. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? The first thing I want to tell you about this word, about this question, is about the word incredible. He's not using the word incredible as slang like we use it, okay? We use the word incredible almost exclusively as slang. But the word means incredible, unbelievable. We use that as slang also. But it means the way he's using it and the way it's used here is the actual literal meaning of this. Why don't you believe this? Why do you think that if God raises the dead, that's something absolutely impossible to believe? And it's a question we need to hear today. Because on paper, according to their theology, more than half of the Sanhedrin and the most powerful people in the, San, in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they all believe that God does raise the dead. So why would he ask those questions to them? Why would God ask us this question this morning as we're Christians? Every one of us believe that God raises the dead, don't we? But do we really live our lives like we actually believe that? Because if, if we actually believe that, why would we cling to the things of this earth that are all going to be burned up with fire? Do we actually believe that God raises the dead? Why would we be so destroyed? And why, why is the word, I'm depressed, that little phrase, and, and the, the idea of depression, uh, the prominent theme in our culture today, rather than I'm rejoicing, I am excited, I'm just tickled pink that I get this opportunity to be here in, on trial in court today. I mean, Paul actually believes God raises the dead. So he's not afraid to die. A person who really believes God raises the dead is a person who's not afraid to lay down his life for Jesus Christ. A person who's not afraid to open his heart to love others 
A person who's not afraid to rejoice in the midst of trials and tribulations. A person who's not afraid to really live their life the way they dream that they could live their life. If we really believe that God raises, uh, uh, raises the dead up, then why would we live our lives addicted to drugs or addicted to other things? Why would we combat all the powers of the enemy with things that are just of this age and they really can't destroy the powers of the enemy? Why not walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? So he asks a question that's really important. Why is it considered uh, incredible or unbelievable among you if God really does raise the dead? Now, there's also an important thing in this question. It's important uh, because it, it gives us an inside picture of how Paul is ministering the gospel to Agrippa. Remember, the Jewish leaders, they hate Agrippa. They hate him because they don't consider him really their king. But there's nothing they can do about it, so they all you know, try to get favor with them, and he plays the game of manipulation with them. But Paul says, why is it considered incredible among you? And this is significant, because Paul is showing a great deal of respect toward Agrippa. He's including Agrippa in the group of people that are considered Jewish leaders. And I promise you, when Agrippa hears these words, his heart opens up a little bit. Oh, you respect me. You, you, a Pharisee, actually respect me. He includes him in that same group. And he tells him, is this not the promise that we've all been living and waiting for? And Agrippa can't deny that because he really is a, a Jew in his religion. And of course he's going to say, yes, this is a promise that we've all been living and waiting for. Is this not the only real hope that we have to live by. And he tells him this is not an empty hope, but this is the hope that was called the promise made by God to our fathers. So isn't a hope the way we use the word hope? Just, I, you know, hope something good happens today. This is a hope that's based on a promise that God made to our fathers, he tells him. If you, it, we're not going to do this now, but if you would turn over to Acts chapter 13 and reread, because we already went through this, Paul's sermon, his gospel that he preaches in the town of Pisidian Antioch. Probably don't remember when we were there, but it's in Acts chapter 13. It's from verses 26 through 41. You would see that he preaches the same theme there in Pisidian Antioch. And we can surmise... Uh, that he's preaching this very same thing to Agrippa that you read over there. Because sometimes we read in uh, the words of Jesus, uh, like the Sermon on the Mount, a great detail. There's a lot of words there. But even with the Sermon on the Mount, if you were to stand up and read it out loud uh, you know, to yourself, you would see it's only going to take you a few minutes to read through it. And John says at the end of the gospel that there are many more things that Jesus said, but if, if we would have recorded all the words, it would have filled up all the books in the world, so we couldn't do that. And so it's recorded for us by the Holy Spirit the truth that God wants us to hear. So we should never think that the words we're reading in Acts 26 or in any of these places are the only words that Paul said on that day. And so oftentimes we have these clues. And the things that he's saying right here, if you go over to Acts chapter 13, you'll see that he's saying the same things, but in more detail. And so we can surmise from that that he's preaching this same gospel 
to Agrippa that he preached when he was in Pisidian Antioch. And of course he is, because it's the only gospel that he preaches. And over there in Acts chapter 13, he quotes a scripture from Habakkuk 1 verse 5. You know that he's quoting scripture to Agrippa, because Agrippa is a Jew. He's a connoisseur of these things. He can understand these things. And over in Acts 13, he quotes this scripture, Habakkuk 1.5, that says, and I imagine him reading this or quoting this to Agrippa this day also. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Remember Festus, he doesn't have a clue. He's standing right there. This is a work that God is accomplishing today that most people in this world don't even see happening. Most people in the world today don't have a clue what Jesus is doing. They don't have a clue. I hope we have a clue. I hope we don't think that, oh, if we can just make it to this election and get a Republican house, everything's going to be perfect in this country. And when are we going to wake up and get a clue and understand that God is doing a work and completely commit ourselves to his side? And I'm not saying don't vote and, you know, vote, please vote. It's, I'm going to vote. Everybody vote, you know. But we can't think that our voting and our politics are going to bring the kingdom of God on this earth anymore. Because it's not, we've thought that as a church many times in history, and it's never, never worked out. We can't think like the school of Shammai. We need to think like the school of Jesus, like the disciples of Jesus, and listen to Jesus. Jesus told them that this entire city and this whole temple is going to crumble. There's not going to be one stone left upon another from this temple. And you need to get out of this place in time before it happens. And it's going to happen in 10 years from this moment. But nobody has a clue except Paul. And Paul's telling them, you need to be saved or you will perish if you are not saved. Even if I describe it to you, you still don't get it, but you just need to believe it. Now look at verse 9. It says, so then I thought, mark the words I thought. We're going to see that Paul says, I thought, I saw, I heard, and I said. He says, so then I thought to myself, that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints uh, in prison, uh, in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Remember when Stephen was being killed, that he held the cloaks, he cast his vote against Stephen. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And all that means is I put them to death, but I didn't get their blood on my hands. I, I, I paid other people to do the dirty work. Okay? It doesn't make him a better guy. It makes him a worse guy. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So this is what Paul thought. Paul thought to himself before he ever met Jesus that he needed to wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the earth. This is what he thought. I want to tell you this morning that the more strictly bound a person's mind and his heart are 
to the religions and the ideologies of man, then the more hostile he will be to the freedom that we have in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Galatians that these, it's not the people of the world doing this. It was religious people sneaking into the church to try to spy out the freedoms that they had in Christ Jesus and take those freedoms away from them and keep them in bondage. The more religious a person is in the sense of being bound to the religions of man and not having a living relationship with Jesus Christ, then the more hostile they will be to Jesus. James chapter 4 and verse 4, very important verse, says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have a lot of kids in here and teenagers in here. And everybody likes to be popular, even when you're older people's age. You don't want everybody to hate you. Nobody enjoys that. You know, everybody wants to have some friends, right? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to have friends. But you always need to realize that if I want to be a friend of the world, then I'm making myself into an enemy of God. You need to realize that if I'm going to go do something because of peer pressure that I know is wrong, and I know my parents wouldn't want that, I know that it's not best for my life, but I'm going to do it because the pressure is so great and I want to be accepted. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be accepted. God designed us to want to be accepted. You know, it's God's love. And it's good that you want to be accepted. But if you transgress a line to make yourself a friend of the world, see, there's only two camps. There's God's, camps and, and, and God's camp and the world's camp. And if you make yourself a friend of the world, then only know this, that you're turning yourself into God's enemy. You're destroying your own life because our life is in God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Saul of Tarsus, that's Paul, right? Saul of Tarsus didn't even realize what he was doing. But Saul of Tarsus, listen to this, was being radicalized. That's the word we use in our modern language. He was being radicalized. He was from the school of Hillel, okay? But he was being radicalized by the movement of the zealots and all the people that we've been talking about as we've been going through these chapters that want to overthrow the power of Rome, okay? And he turned into a radical terrorist. He didn't begin that way. That's what he's telling Agrippa. He said, I didn't begin that way. From the time I was a little boy, I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, and I was a great teacher and a great preacher, and I, and I loved God with all of my heart, but I became radicalized against this Jesus, and I wanted to wipe these Jesus people, wipe these Christians off the face of the earth. It says here in, what, in the words that, 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 uh, that Paul speaks, he says, I was furiously enraged at them, in verse 11. Notice that. I was furiously enraged at them. In the Greek, the term that he uses is literally, I was outrageously mad with rage. I was crazy with anger. And here in just a few minutes, we're going to read that Festus, the good, that doesn't have a clue, is going to pick up on the very words of Paul and say, yeah, you really are crazy, Paul. You weren't just crazy then. You're still crazy. Paul said, I, I was out of my mind with rage. How many of you remember, and don't raise your hand, <laughs> how many of you remember 
that there was a time in your life when you were out of your mind with rage. Just anger drove you on the inside. Everything, was, or maybe you called it frustration. Maybe you called it depression. Maybe you called it some other name. But nothing was working out the way you wanted it to work out. And you were fighting tooth and nail to make things work out the way you want them to work out. That's where Paul was, okay? And then he was blinded by the light. Look with me at verse 12. He continues the story. While so engaged, what does that mean? Persecuting Christians. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw. So he said, I thought one thing, but I was wrong. Don't hold on to what you thought when you find out that you're wrong. Just give it up and let it go. You can think something 10 years, 15 years, you can think something all your life, but on that day when you realize before Jesus Christ that you were wrong, just give it up. He said, that's what I thought, but then I saw. I thought that because I had never seen Jesus. I thought that because I had never met Jesus. But he said, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard. First I saw, then I heard. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, he was speaking to me in my native tongue. He was speaking to me in the language that my mama spoke to me in when I was a child. I heard this voice speak to me, and he knew my name. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I knew who this is speaking to me. Because he calls him Lord later. He says, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, and this is where this comes out. It doesn't come out in chapter 9, but it comes out in Paul's recollection of it. He says that Jesus told him, this voice told him, he doesn't know it's Jesus yet, but this voice said to me, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, some of you are agricultural people and you know what goads are. Some of you have no idea what goads are, but you know what it means to be goaded probably, but you know, if you've got a big ox there and he's supposed to move from here to that front door and get out of here and he's just standing there and he won't go, then they had these long pointed sticks. I think they use electrical things now, but they had this long pointed sticks and they would stick him in the, you know, in the rear end with that, with that stick and stick him in the side with that stick and goad him to go where he wanted. Well, the ox didn't like that, so he could kick against the goads. And Jesus is saying, this is pointless. Sooner or later, I'm going to move you out that door. You're not staying here. You're going to move to where I want you. And you've been kicking against my goads now for years. And it's hard for you. It's wearing you out. Someone here today is worn out from kicking against the goads of the Lord in their life. He's trying to move you to a better place. Don't you understand that? But it hurts. Yeah, because you're in the wrong place. He's not going to keep sticking you with the stick when you get to the right place. He's just trying to get you to move forward. Why does he need this stick? Because he called you by name and you didn't come. He begged you and you didn't come. He pleaded with you and you didn't come. He sent people to you and you didn't come. Well, he loves you too much to let you go to hell. So he's going to keep sticking you with this stick until you get to heaven. Get over to the other side. It won't hurt so much. Stop kicking against the goads, he says. 
And he says something really cool. He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul, we're going to see this in a minute, knows that this is God talking to him. He's not stupid. He knows this is the Lord talking to him. Suddenly something clicks on the inside. So God's opinion of me persecuting people is that I'm persecuting him. So God's opinion of me hating somebody is that I hate him. That's what the Bible teaches us, by the way. God's opinion of me treating people bad is that I'm treating God bad. Why are you persecuting me? The voice says to him. So, he thought something, then he saw something, then he heard something. And then it says in verse 15 that he said something. His confession. I said, who are you, Lord? What language are they speaking? They're speaking the Hebrew dialect. There's two Hebrew words for Lord. There's Adonai and the name that they would not speak, Yahweh. He's speaking the one that they would not speak. He says, so he doesn't, he's not asking them, is this God talking to me or some angel? He knows this is God. But he wants to know his name. He's saying exactly what Moses said to him at the burning bush. Tell me your name. Reveal your name to me. Who are you, Lord, is what he asks him. And the Lord answers, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then he just goes right into verse 16. Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus says to him, in short, this isn't all about you, Saul. All your life, you've thought this was all about you. It's very interesting, actually, that Jesus doesn't say to him, I have appeared to you today for your salvation. I love you so much, Saul, and I've just been looking for you and come home to be with me, and I've prepared a place for you, and you're going to be my best friend now, and be, be, become a Christian, Saul, because, well, could you just say the sinner's prayer with me right now, Saul, please? No, it's not even about Saul. The first thing he says to him is great commission talk. I've got a job for you to do. Get up, quit whining and crying, let's go. Yeah, you're going to get saved now and filled with the Holy Ghost, but there's a reason for that. And the reason is that I can send you and use you to preach this gospel to, those, to the world around you. I want to send you forth. The purpose of Christ's appearance to him was to send him forth. And he sends him as a prophet. He sends him as an apostle. He sends him as an evangelist. He sends him as a pastor and as a teacher. The Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave five gifts to mankind. To all humankind, he gave five gifts, and you can count them. One is the apostle, two, the prophet, three, the evangelist, four, the pastor, and five, the teacher. Those are the gifts that he gave. And he sends Paul out according to those gifts. He sends him out as a prophet. He says that you will testify of the things, literally it says, not only in which you have seen me, but also of the things in which I will be seen by you. A prophet sees something and then he tells people about it. 
Paul, you're going to go and you're going to tell people what you have seen. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, Acts 1.8. And you shall be my witnesses. You're not going to talk about what your pastor said. I mean, you might say, you know, Pastor Kevin says this, but it's not his testimony. You're going to give your testimony. You're going to talk about what you have seen. And, and Jesus says it in the, in the original. It comes out even stronger, but it's so cool. He says, these of things, this is, of things not only in which you have seen me. That's past tense. Our testimony has two aspects to it, a past and a present. You're going to testify to them about the things in which you have seen me. Listen to it. He doesn't say about the things you've seen. Because that's all about you. This is about me, Paul. You're going to testify, testify about the miraculous things that have happened in which you have seen me. That's your testimony. And then the second part of your testimony is you're going to testify about the miraculous things that are happening around you in which I will be seen by you throughout your entire life. You're going to keep seeing me around every corner. You're going to see me answering your prayers. You're going to see me moving in your life. We're getting ready to go to a story when Paul's going to see Jesus when a poisonous snake bites him on the hand and everybody thinks he's going to die and he just shakes it off into the fire. Paul sees Jesus around every corner. He sees Jesus in every place. He sees Jesus while he's on trial in this court. And he's tickled pink, like I said, to be able to be here today and tell you about Jesus, Agrippa. His life is a continuing, continuing miracle. He lives his life together with Jesus. And I have to be honest with you this morning. This is radically different from the way that, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to use the word that most of us are not, but like I said, I'm challenging, this, this is a word that challenges me too. Are we living that way? That we're really walking with Jesus day in and day out? He's such a part of our lives that we see him in everything. If we are, we're not going to be depressed anymore. We're not going to be worried anymore. I mean, those things are going to attack us, but we'll shake them off like Paul shakes that snake off. They're going to keep attacking us, but we're not going to walk in those things because we have a hope of salvation that's been promised to us. It was promised to our fathers. So there are past miracles, and there are present miracles, and there are future miracles. He says that I'm going to send you to proclaim the gospel to the very people that I'm going to deliver you from. Think about that. I'm going to send you as, a, as an apostle. I'm going to to be sent as the word apostle, and I'm going to send you as an evangelist. And the people I'm going to send you to, they're going to be your enemies. I'm not going to send you to preach to your best friends. Okay? Maybe they were your best friends, but when you start preaching to them, they're going to become your enemies. He says, he says to them ahead of time, I'm going to send you behind the enemy lines. I'm going to send you in ahead of me. I'm coming, and you're going to go as an evangelist to tell them that I'm coming. But I will deliver you from them, but you will preach to them. He says, I'm going to send you as a pastor and a teacher to open their eyes so that they may turn. That they may turn, that they may repent from darkness to light. Salvation is a turning from darkness to light. These three that were baptized today, they are turning from darkness to light. We once walked in darkness. Now we walk in light. 
It's a turning from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. These are powerful words Paul uses here. He says to Agrippa, you have been living under the dominion of Satan. You think that you are king, but your king is Satan himself. Whether you realize this or not, all of this world lies under the dominion of darkness, under the dominion of Satan. And our mission in life, the Great Commission, is to preach the light and that people can turn from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. And there is no other dominion. Most people in this world think, I'm my own master. That's a really popular theme in northern Nevada, especially when you get out way out there in places like Silver Springs or Tonopah or somewhere else. But right here in Yerington. Most people, they just want to keep to themselves. I'm my own master. I'm my own boss. And you're not. The devil just loves telling you that. But you're under the dominion of Satan. You're just doing what he, he's making you do. Why not get free from Satan and go over to God's side? Why not walk into the freedom that Jesus Christ paid for when he went to the cross and died for our sins and receive the forgiveness of sins and enter into the fullness of everything that God has for you, your inheritance in Christ Jesus. Do you know today that you have an inheritance? Well, you may say, yes, I know that. Okay, does your neighbor know it? Does your family know it? Do they know they have an inheritance, that they are wealthy beyond imagination, but nobody has told them about the inheritance they have in the kingdom of God yet? and that they can enter into that inheritance. So look at verse 19. Another key verse here in this story. It says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Remember we talked about the pomp, the fantasy of Agrippa. Paul says, I've rejected all the earthly pomp. I've rejected all the show. I've rejected the mask that everybody wears. I'm not wearing a mask anymore. I'm just not doing it, Paul says. Do you want to make that a COVID mask? you want to make that whatever mask you want? But I'm not masking myself up anymore. I've opened my heart to Jesus Christ. I've gone from the kingdom of Satan to the, to the kingdom of God. I've proclaimed Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. And all your fantasy... All your pomp, all your show, it means nothing to me because I've seen a different vision. That's what he's telling him. The heavens opened and a light brighter than the sun shined on me. And I was struck blind by this light and driven to the ground by this light. And then I was picked up when the outstretched hand of Jesus came to me. I took a hold of his hand just like Peter did. And he picked me up and he sat me, set me down right here in front of you, Agrippa, today to tell you that his hand is still outstretched to you and you can be saved today. But you must take him by the hand and go from the kingdom of Satan over unto the kingdom of God. I have remained faithful only to the heavenly vision of Jesus. There's only, again, two visions in this world. To which one do we remain faithful? Verse 20, I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Now listen to this. Performing deeds or literally bringing forth fruit appropriate to 
Repentance. Do you remember those words from anywhere in the Bible? Anybody remember what John the Baptist said? When the religious people came down to be baptized? Because they thought it was a show. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to get a selfie with the man that's wearing, you know, camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. We were just at the Grand Canyon. Man, people are nuts taking selfies on the edge of that canyon. People die every year there. I mean, it's just stupid. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I mean, I'm scared for people. I was looking at my binoculars at people. I was like, no, no, don't, no, don't do that. Just, just crazy, okay? But people are living on the edge of something they don't understand. They don't know what's going on. And they came down there just to get a selfie with John the Baptist. And John turned to them and said, you brood of vipers. Who called you to repentance? You bring forth the fruit of repentance first. Baptism, what you saw this morning, it's not a show. It's not a fantasy. It's not pomp. It's not a big celebration. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is taking a hold of Jesus' hand that he has stretched out to you. Baptism is a cry out to God. And whoever cries out to God for salvation, Lord, save me, Peter said. Paul said, Lord, what's your name? Save me. Whoever cries out to him, they will never be cast out. You know, baptism isn't about, uh, you know, all the family showing up to watch you get baptized, even though that's a great part of it and it's wonderful. But if nobody was there to watch you to be baptized, if you were just out in the middle of a desert like the Ethiopian eunuch and you said to Philip, here's some water, what prevents me from being baptized? If nobody gave you the certificate, if you didn't sign your name on the door, what difference does it make? It doesn't have anything to do with all the other people. It's between you and God. It's a cry of your conscience for salvation unto God. Peter says this. It's not just taking a bath and washing away some, some sin. It's a spiritual change in a person's life. And so Paul says these same words to Agrippa. Agrippa knows these words. Okay? He knows who Paul is referencing. Remember that Agrippa is a connoisseur of all these things. And John the Baptist was murdered by the grandfather of Agrippa and Bernice. So I just want you to understand. I just want you to really understand how deeply the sword of the Spirit is piercing to the heart of Agrippa at this moment. He is under conviction. All of his pomp is crashing down around him. Paul is preaching the gospel and just bringing it home. He thought Paul was going to defend himself, and he's not. He's trying to save Agrippa. And he just boldly brings the gospel home to him by quoting John the Baptist and saying that people need to bring forth the fruit of repentance. They need to do something. The first step and the first fruit of true repentance is to go into those waters and be baptized. I've known people, and I won't name them by name, but I know, know, know some people and, and that, that you could not get them to the baptismal waters. I know some people right now. I know some people right here in this community. And I, I know in their heart that they believe on Jesus. But there's just some kind of pride or something that won't let them go into those baptismal waters yet. But God's going to get them there. He might just have to keep goading them. 
And keep goading them, because when you go into those waters, you're naked before God. You know, it's just all out there before God. And you're confessing that my life didn't mean anything without you, Jesus. And everything I thought was completely wrong. And now you are with me, Jesus, and you give your life over to him. And Paul says to him, this is the clear truth of the scripture, what I'm preaching. These things are based on the scripture. Now look at verse 24. Now it just escalates the whole situation. <laughs> in verse 24 it says, while Paul was saying this in his defense. So right in the middle of Paul's sermon, Festus jumps up with his Roman garb on, and he says in a loud voice, so I'm not going to do it, but you have to imagine if it says it was in a loud voice, it just boomed out over the whole court, right? He just jumps up, shocks everybody, and says in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. He uses the same words Paul used earlier. He says, you're out of your mind. But it's not with rage, and it's not past tense, it's present tense. You are nuts, Paul. He says, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. In the Greek, he says, literally, the, the vast amount of letters are driving you mad. What it means is you've studied Scripture so much, you read the Bible too much, Paul. Have you ever heard that? Quit quoting the Bible, Paul. Get real. This is driving you nuts. You're going to church too much. You're reading the Bible too much. He says, it's driving you insane, Paul. You don't talk like a normal person anymore. We used to have fun with you, Paul, back in the old days, but now all you do is quote the Bible to us. We thought you were smarter than that. It's driven you nuts. But Paul says... I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. No, the Bible's the only real truth there is. And so I just stopped talking all the nonsense that you've been talking. I speak the truth. And then he says, for the king, he turns to Agrippa, knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with great confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The truth does not hide in shadows. If you want to know if something's true or not, look to see how much it allows itself to be examined in the light. The truth never hides in shadows. The truth is pure light. And he said these things have not been done in a corner. They've not been done in a closet. They've not been done in the shadows. And Agrippa, you know that what I'm saying is true. Agrippa doesn't answer yet. And then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And he doesn't even wait for the answer. He says, I know that you do, because King Agrippa does believe the prophets. And Paul, like I said, has spoken many more words than we read here. He's been quoting from the scripture to Agrippa, and he's calling him to a moment of repentance. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe what the Bible says? Notice that Paul's appeal for salvation is not based on, do you believe me? He says, do you believe what the Bible says? Do you believe what the prophets spoke? 
Do you believe in this promise that God made? And he says, I know that you do. Paul is very clearly calling Agrippa to become a Christian. You'll hear this in the next words. Agrippa knows that. He's calling him to be baptized. He's quoting the words of John the Baptist. He's calling him to make a radical change. Can you imagine what would have happened in the Roman Empire on that day if Agrippa would have said yes to Jesus? If Agrippa would have taken the hand of Jesus that was outstretched to him for salvation? But he didn't. It would have sent shockwaves throughout the entire empire. But he didn't. And he says this and said, verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now that sounds really good. And most English versions are translated like that. And it's possible to translate the Greek like that. But with what Paul says next, it's more understandable to translate it like this. Because this is what he says in the Greek. He says, with so few words and in such a brief space of time, do you really think you can convince me to become a Christian? Notice the word Christian. You haven't heard that word very much in the book of Acts. You don't really hear it much in the New Testament. They were first called Christians in Antioch of Syria, right? But already at this point, Agrippa realizes, this means the people realized that coming to Jesus is a complete break with your old life. You're becoming something new. You're becoming a Christian. Someone like Christ. Someone who walks with Christ. And, 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 and Agrippa, who's just cut to the quick by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the word that Paul's preaching, he says, do you really think you can convince me to become a Christian with so few words and in such a short amount of time? And I want to say to you, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And if you cannot be convinced with few words and in short time, maybe you're never going to be convinced. Because the truth doesn't take a long time to believe. The truth doesn't take a long time to explain. When the truth comes, you either believe the truth or you reject the truth. And when Agrippa said these words, he rejected the truth of the gospel that was being preached to him. They sound nice, but they are words of rejection. I think Paul says then, in verse 29, I would wish to God. So he knows already he's rejected. He says, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, which literally in the Greek means rather by few words or by many words, whether this took us all day of preaching or if it took five minutes, whether I just said Jesus loves you or I read the four Gospels to you, I would wish whether in a short or a long time not only you, Agrippa, but also all who hear me, Bernice, you too, Festus, you too, Lysias, the commander of a thousand men, you too, all the other people in this court, he turns to every one of them, and he basically makes a call, an altar call. I would wish that somebody here would say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I wish that you would become like me, such as I am, except for these chains. Those are powerful words. And in verse 30 we read, 
the king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Every single one of these people repeat the mistake of Pilate in the trial of Jesus. Now Agrippa washes his hands of Paul. Well, he hasn't done anything wrong, but we can't really set him free because he appealed to Caesar. We're going to have to send him to Caesar. He's not my problem. Agrippa had a moment. There was a tiny open window of time when he could have grabbed a hold of the hand of Jesus and said yes to the outstretched hand of salvation. But he said no. The door closed. And as far as we know from history, because we know a lot about his life, it never came back again. He had the opportunity to be saved, but he rejected that opportunity. I want to challenge you today. Whether you've been a Christian for 40 years, 50 years, or for four days, I want to challenge you today to understand that our walk with Christ is not just past tense, but present tense. And when we say no to Jesus, don't expect that that door is necessarily going to open up again. When you have your opportunity to say yes to Jesus, as crazy as it may seem, as wild as it may seem, don't think about, well, what's Bernice going to say? Don't think about what's Nero going to say when he finds out. Don't think about how embarrassing is that going to be for me, great King Agrippa, to get baptized by this prisoner. Just say yes, because Jesus showed up that day to save Agrippa. He made an appointment with Agrippa, and Agrippa didn't even know. And when he realized, he said, no, no, thank you. I'm fine. I can just swim here. Could you imagine if Peter would have said, no, that's okay, Jesus, I know how to swim. I'm a professional fisherman. Okay, Jesus would have just walked on by. Peter would have drowned. I mean, it doesn't say that Jesus dove in to try to save him. It was Peter that cried out to be saved. And Jesus said, reached out his hand. Well, Peter had to reach his out too and take the hand of Jesus. And that process of repentance, that process of turning, is repeated in our lives throughout the duration of our lives. It doesn't matter how you began a race, does it? It makes no difference. What matters is how you finish the race, right? It doesn't matter how many years you've walked with Jesus. What matters is to walk with him to the very end because he is calling to us today and it's really difficult to kick against his goads. Why among us today is it considered incredible that God really raises the dead. As we come this morning to receive communion, as we come to receive this bread and this cup, Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He said, this is the cup of my new covenant. He did not say, uh, and I want you to do this so you can remember me. He said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me to show the Lord's death, Paul says, until he comes. So actually, communion is not just talking to us about the death of Jesus Christ, even though we have crosses on top of these things, is it? It's talking to us about his resurrection and his second coming. It's not the same thing as when we get together 
you know, some cultures 40 days after the death of a person and remember them. It's not the same thing as looking at old photo albums of dead relatives. He's not dead, he is alive. This is telling ourselves and reminding ourselves that God really does raise the dead. Let me have the worship group come up here in the communion service this morning. Let's go ahead and all stand together and pray. Father, just as we come before you this morning, as we stand before you, let's hear your voice calling to us. You have allowed us to hear your voice. You've put the story of Agrippa and Bernice in the Bible for a reason. Because somewhere we can all identify with them. Somewhere we know on the inside how ugly we are without you, Jesus. We need you in our lives, Lord. I believe that we stand on the threshold of a new work that you're doing in the earth today. As we prepare for your coming, are we prepared for that coming? Do we have enough oil in our lamps? Are we prepared to make it through this night? Lord, as we come to this table to receive from you today, we receive this bread, which is your body, broken for us. We receive this cup, which is the cup of the new covenant you made with us. And if this is a new covenant, if this is a new testament, that that means that you have a place for us. You have an inheritance for us. And we need to walk into that, Lord. We just come to say yes to you, Jesus. We come to proclaim Hosanna again. Lord, save us. We come to take a hold of your outstretched hand. As each one of these who came to be baptized today, let us shout it out like Daniel did this morning. That's a little boy that I've known since he was born. I never heard him shout that loud. He's actually always so quiet, I can't hardly understand what he's saying. I was shocked to hear him shout out that, yes, Jesus is my Lord, and to write his name in huge letters. Like Paul saying to the Galatians, look with what large letters I am writing to you. This is big stuff. This is big news. This is the only logical truth there is. And it wasn't done in a dark corner somewhere. This is the only thing worth living for. So Lord, let us come to proclaim with loud voices that the world may think we're crazy, but we're not. We're actually completely sane because we've been saved by Jesus. You are our Lord, Lord. We don't want to be a friend of this world. We want to be friends God. So Lord, we rededicate ourselves to you this morning. And we do this in remembrance of you, proclaiming your death until you come. Because you have been raised from the dead. And in you, we have been raised. And one day, 
we will all be glorified with new bodies and live with you in your kingdom forever and ever. We give you praise and glory this morning. We bless these elements in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.